0: Hello and welcome to our Children's Rights in Action podcast series. Here at Children's Parliament we believe that all children should grow up in a world of love, happiness and understanding. It's our mission to inspire greater awareness and understanding of the power of children's human rights and to support the implementation of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, the UNCRC, into Scots law. We're really looking forward to sharing this with you through our conversations. Today, we want to focus on how we make children's rights real through the lens of love.
1: Hello, and welcome to a conversation about love. This is one of a series of conversations that Children's Parliament is hosting in this year of childhood. And these conversations are about a number of themes that are part of our work with children, where we explore their human rights and think about the characteristics of rights-based relationships. And over the years when we talk with children about things like kindness, empathy, trust and the core idea of human dignity, children always talk about love. They, they bring this up and they talk about it as something that children both need and need to know that they have. And so with that in mind today, our conversations about love and joining me is Dr. Adam Burley. And Adam is a consultant clinical psychologist with NHS Lothian. Adam, welcome. Hi. Thank you. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, we like to start these conversations with asking people to, our guests, just to tell us a wee bit about their own childhood. But, all right, What would you like to tell us?
0: Well, it's a long time ago now. Um, uh, what would I like to tell you? I was born and brought up in Scotland, in Edinburgh to begin with. Uh, Juniper Green, I went to Juniper Green Primary School when it was still the old building at the end of the road. And then my family moved to East Lothian when I was seven. And um, my family being my mum and dad at that stage, and my older brother and my younger sister, three of us. Uh, I'm a middle child, so those in you who know will know the complexities that goes with that particular uh, situation. Um, we lived in Gullen, some of you might know, in East Lothian, um, until, I'm trying to think when that would be, probably 85. I was 13 and my mum and dad separated and I didn't see my dad for a while. And I stayed with my mum and we moved to North Berwick. Um, and my, my brother went off to university and then at 18 I went off to university so there was bits about it that were good. Um, East Lothian was a nice place to, to, to get away from the house <laughs> when things weren't straightforward at home um, and I think I probably had enough uh, complications within the house to become interested in psychology and become a <laughs> clinical psychologist <laughs> and be able to relate to some of what Um, some of the people I work with tell me about their childhoods.
1: Actually, that's quite good. And could Tell us a wee bit about your your day job when you're not speaking to people like me at Children's Parliament.
0: My my day job is I'm a a clinical psychologist. Um, For those of you who have never met one before, they look like this. Not all of them. Um, But what psychologists do? Tend to work with people who have difficulties with their mental health in one way or another. We're not psychiatrists, so we don't tend to prescribe or, or necessarily diagnose people with illnesses, but really try and understand something about um, what's going on in the person's life, what has gone on in the person's life, and how that might lead them to be relating and, and feeling and um, operating in the way in the world in the way that they are just now. So, I guess the understanding there would be that that most people's mental health has something to do with what's going on in their external world and their internal world and what perhaps went on um, in their history. Um, So my sort of day job, I I, I tend to actually work around um, homeless services. So I work with uh, people who um, are experiencing homelessness, um, typically people who've been experiencing homelessness for quite a long time. And also with the staff who work with homeless people. So I do quite a lot of staff supervision and consultation um, again around the fact that staff will be in relation to i'm going to talk about relationships quite a lot probably are in relation to to homeless people and, and and often those relationships aren't massively straightforward um and so part of the the supervision is to help us think about what those relationships might mean and what they might be telling us about about somebody's life difficulties really so that's um that's mainly my day job, working with people and working with staff who are also people. It should be should be mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I guess it might be worth saying at this point that um, the connection, perhaps with childhood, is that um, well, I'll say everybody because it's pretty much the case who who finds themselves in a position of being um, long-term homeless has very typically had very very complicated experiences of childhood Um, often there's been very high levels of adversity um, ranging from neglect and being ignored and and not mattering through to much more traumatic experiences of um, violence abuse um, and other frightening and and disturbing experiences um, throughout their early years really and I guess what we know is that early years are very very important in terms of as learning who we are and how we then understand the world uh, as we as we get older and, and start um, start experiencing it
1: yeah thank you for that so we approached you to come and talk about love what was yeah. what were your first reactions or thoughts to that invitation
0: um uh love it, it's um it's a, certainly a four-letter word, isn't it? It's um, it's a big one. I think um, my first sort of reactions about it really were, wow, you know, how how do you approach a, a subject like love? It, it it feels very very important. It, it feels an important concept. Um, I think when I start thinking about it, I probably immediately start going back to relationships and particular sorts of relationships of that could be described as loving. Um, and what they really mean, um, and how we might sort of unpack, if you like, this word love, which I think covers everything from, I love my record collection, and I love my bikes, and I love my daughter, and I love my partner. Um, They're very sort of different things, really, but but might have something in in common in, in some way. I think typically, just as a sort of starting point, perhaps, I think we're often, when people use love, um, we're often talking about something that is deemed to be good, you know, that is to make us feel good. If we're loved, that feels good. Or that we love things that are good for us in some way, or we love things that have been good to us. Um, I think we can maybe get into a bit more, but one of the things I think that's quite striking in the work that I do is how often people have very strong relationships relationships that they might describe as love with things then that might be drugs but it might also be people but with people that from the outside it looks like it's very bad for them they 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 have they've fallen in love with things um, that aren't necessarily don't seem to have good health outcomes for them in some way and I think there's something important there about what we first love or where we first learn about love And often those, again, are in our early years. And of course, I'm no different from you or anyone else watching this, that none of us chose uh, the particular relationships that we were born into. And in that regard, we didn't choose who we loved. We didn't choose our own minds. And we didn't choose how we come to understand what love is. Um, And if people's experience of being cared for or being in attachment or close to somebody, a parent growing up, has been very, very complicated, that doesn't mean that they don't necessarily love that. And that can start to cause some very significant difficulties later if they keep falling in love with their history. And by doing so, keep falling in love with relationships that end up causing them all sorts of other problems in some way. Um, but I don't suppose that's what we're usually typically talking about. Although I think that is that's quite important to, to sort of describe that that relationships are. We don't have a huge amount of choice in our early relationships. We, we enter into them and our mind seems to attach to whatever is in front of us. And that starts to shape who we become and what we start seeing in the world as we get older and what it is that we're attracted to and what it is that makes sense to us to the point where it might sound crazy to some people, but I, I imagine some people watching this will get this, is that sometimes when I come along, let's say, as a psychologist and say to somebody, I care about them and that I'm interested in them and that I don't want to harm them, they find that very, very odd and want to run a mile from it because it's so unfamiliar and so strange um, and they don't love it, even though it might be something that ultimately might be useful in way.
1: So how, how would you characterise a kind of a positive experience of love then? maybe growing up around positive.
0: Positivity. I think, yeah, yeah. Again, positive is, is a, a, a sort of relative word, isn't it? But I think um, if we sort of tried to make it a bit more objective, and I'm no massive scientist about this, but if we were thinking about, well, what sort of relationships might lead us to have relatively good outcomes in the world um, that allow us to form and maintain relationships that let our emotional and psychological needs as a human being be met and allow us to go on to do things like have friendship groups and join clubs and get jobs and and um, fall in love in ways that are healthy and produce things like babies and holidays and houses and and shared interests i think probably starts very early on with um, what does a healthy loving early relationship look like i think probably very heart of that would be a, a, a word like safety, uh, something to do with uh, a child who's coming into the world completely unknowing what the world is. Uh, if you think about a baby, they have no prior experience, <laughs> they just follow um, and being made to feel safe within the world, safe to start to play and explore and use all the attributes that our amazing mind has to start playing and pointing and touching and exploring. and. And to have somebody alongside them who supports that, encourages that, um, shapes it, um, but not in frightening ways, but lets the child know that they can play in the world and be in the world and relate in the world free from anxiety or or as free as possible from anxiety. Because anxiety in relationships really, really gets in the way of development. Uh, When people start getting fearful of expressing themselves or talking or playing or drawing or moving or exploring or discovering, um, then life can get really quite small. And one of the things that can be very, very problematic is if the child becomes scared of people themselves, because it's really through people that we get to know ourselves and get to um, really live in the world and connect emotionally and psychologically. So I guess a healthy, good enough, loving relationship would have those elements of safety at the heart, um, interest, curiosity, um, stability, uh, trust. And trust, again, starts to become a, a bigger word about is it a relationship where the child trusts that the person they're in relation to will do what they say they're going to do, that they are solid enough that they can commit to that relationship and use it as a safe, solid platform through which to, to go off and, and explore the world in some way. To the point when they're 17 or 18, they might go, I've had enough of you guys, I'm leaving home to go off and uh, and explore the world. Because they've had enough safety, security, stability, and they've been able to internalise those relationships and be able to then leave home with them in their mind and go off and make new relationships and trust that when they communicate with other people and talk to other people, that those people will be interested in them uh, and be curious about what they have to say. And so they can engage in the world in the sort of safe intercourse of communication that, that leads to personal development and, and um, discovery really. Um, So everything that promotes that, uh, and I, and, I, and I would say, you know, the opposite really is, is everything that gets in the way of that, which tends to be relationships that are defined by fear and anxiety and control um, to the point where everything gets defensive and closed down and the capacity to explore and develop diminishes. I think the other thing I would want to say in that, that's, that's very sort of abstract and psychological perhaps, is something about warmth. Uh, and compassion, and care, and genuine unconditional regard for the person as a living thing in the world that has value um, by virtue of its presence, uh, and and nothing else. Um, I think that's an important part of of a healthy love. That that ties into the unconditional bit, I think, Mm -hmm. that you are loved, um, and valued, and worth something because of your presence alone
1: i think is, is important and a lot of that is obviously about kind of parenting home environment you know the kind of familial family relationships what does this mean for professionals so i mean if you're an early years practitioner a teacher a social worker a clinical psychologist you know what <laughs> do you do you do should we love the people we work with is that always easy do we say that i don't tell me tell me what you think well
0: it's complicated i, I think uh, i know we've touched on it before I think honestly I think certainly my profession and and in I I speak for in the mental health world probably more than than anything else but maybe just in the in the general health world love is is quite a taboo word it's quite it's quite an anxiety provoking word I think for for the service maybe for a range of reasons uh, about what it might be to actually care about somebody or love them or have that sort of connection with somebody maybe that's partly because we're a small service relatively speaking with a very large population and it may just be too much to really love the people that we work with because we don't have the internal resources or capacity to love everybody that we come into contact with but I do think the the principles around it um, that we touched that sort of when we're unpacking it as I was remain very very important and I think if I'm honest, do, do get lost sometimes. I think we often retreat into a, a relationship that is about um, doing to, I'll be the clever clinical psychologist with some very exciting treatments and you can be the patient and we will, I will do the treatments to you. And, you know, and it becomes a transaction that's sort of slightly removed from the real relational contact between two human beings. I think the irony of that in mental health services is that certainly where i work many many of the people who come looking for help with presenting symptoms such as depression or anxiety whatever it might be um has often arisen through the absence of love as we've described earlier in their earliest relationships that is what has given rise to to the distress that they're experiencing because they can't relate fully in the world they can't Get into circulation fully and, and and express themselves free from anxiety as a human being. And they come to see us. And actually, sometimes we end up reenacting the very removed uh, and slightly dispassionate uh, relationships that may have brought the person to seek help from us in the first place. That we don't necessarily provide the relational experience that that might actually be useful for the person. Uh, At times, it sometimes feels a bit like, you know, running a thirst clinic, knowing that people are thirsty because they haven't had water. But the one thing we're not allowed to provide is water. Like, we can talk around what it might be like to not have water and maybe suggest places where water is um, and talk about, you know, (laughs) shops where you can buy water. But what we can't do is provide the water. That's, that's something that gets very, very worrying. Um, I could count the number of times that I would have said openly in, in certainly my early years, you know, within a mental health setting that I loved somebody I was working with on the fingers of no fingers because I never would have said it. Um, now I'm, I'm much more comfortable with it. people I've worked with over the years who I've loved deeply uh, and people I'm working with just now who I love deeply because of all the stuff he said before. Because of their humanity, I guess my humanity, and the fact that I think it's probably one of the most potent um, elements in, in things moving. It's interesting when we actually ask the people that we work with what is useful to them. Um, it's rarely clever psychological things like homework diaries and techniques and blah, blah, blah. It's usually somebody stuck with me, believed in me, and tolerated me and bore the crap and hung around and, and held me in their mind, you know, valued me as a human being, was the thing that changed my life. And we hear that all the time. And yet still actually in our services, I'm not sure we're maybe just a resource limit, I don't know. There's lots of reasons around it, I'm sure, but not fully willing to swallow that piece of evidence, really. And I, again, without rambling too much, It strikes me we have this, at any one point in time, we have this multinational, multi-site clinical trial going on um, that we know people do quite well at. um, And and the patients come out of doing quite well. And it's called the family. And when the family works quite well, most patients come out at the end of the treatment doing all right. Um, And we also know when families don't work so well, what that looks like. But when we come to provide services, we almost completely neglect what we know about what a healthy family looks like. And often the services we provide look far more like a dysfunctional family than they do a healthy family, Um, which I always find interesting. You you wouldn't find many people who come into the mental health service saying that they found it family-like and they felt like they belonged there and that they were really valued. And that they were held in mind and cared for and loved you wouldn't find many i don't think
1: yeah i mean mean, thinking kind of as a a country kind of aspirationally we have all these national outcomes and uh, one of them is that uh, we do we do as it says we do all we can to ensure children grow up in an atmosphere of happiness love and understanding and children's parliament Uh, children involved with children's parliament were involved in kind of consultation engagement around that and they were really keen that the word love was in that statement and I I don't know if other countries have these have that word in there and the kind of statement but the focus was on happiness love and understanding and I just wonder what your thoughts I mean can a country aspire to such a thing is that is it worth naming as such
0: I think so yeah I, I don't I'm sure there's a higher aspiration, really. I, I think um, again, the, the the sort of slight nerd in me um, starts to think about where these words are in position in relation to each other. That sort of um, happiness may be a, a consequence of particular sorts of loving relationships. You know, it, where we might have we might have a country that aspires to placing human relationships at the absolute heart of every single thing that it does understanding that that is all we have everything is subsequent to the nature and the quality of the relationships that we have each with each other as human beings and that starts in the earliest moments and days of our life like that's where it's at and to have that as the aspiration and then maybe start to talk about well what sort of relationships are we talking about well Ones that have, you know, um, all the stuff that we've been talking about. It We're free from anxiety, free from fear, safety. Obviously, that then starts to lead into things like, well, we need to really address things like poverty uh, and social inequality. Because those tend to be the big environmental stressors that can influence the relationships that parents have with their children. It can be hard to be unconditionally loving and caring if... Ninety percent of your time, you're worrying about where the next bit of food is coming from. That that makes it difficult because you, as a parent, are so anxious that it hard becomes hard to become unanxious with your developing child. Um, you can see I tend to sort of drift then down to things like fear and anxiety because they are such they are such central components. And so when we're talking about that aspiration, I think what it's really saying is, wouldn't it be great if we had a country? where relationships were free from fear, fear from poverty, damnation, um, trauma, free from the fear of loss of home, um, of destitution, of unemployment, um, of physical and personal threat. Yes, because then that might necessarily provide a context in which relationships of health could grow. But it's quite hard to just say, well, let's just, be good to have nice loving happy relationships wouldn't it yeah it would um but there's some very big structural factors that that you might need to address it so i think it should be there um i don't have any problem with it being there as long as it doesn't become a sort of way of avoiding the larger contextual issues that might facilitate um a country where children can grow up in relationships that are liberated from fear and anxiety and as such have a greater potential for life happiness value worth trust belonging and all the rest of it so yeah i think it's a good yeah. aspiration I would, I would just mine down into what it really means i think
1: and when I mean, we have these conversations with children they do kind of often talk about love as a as a right but i guess what you're saying is if they have a right to A family who has a decent income a home all these things actually make the idea of love as a right but love as an experience a bit more realistic or achievable if you like rather than love itself being a right
0: yeah you've made it you've made it you make it possible that the love of which we're the type of love that we're talking about has a chance to flourish and, and and grow i think Yeah, because the risk is you say, well, you know, love should be an interminable right. Well, okay, that's fine. But that might be hard to hear for some people who are living in destitution Mm -hmm. and have got small children and are trying to their very, very, very best. um, But, uh, you know for all sorts of reasons that with their control are struggling to provide what they may even intellectually know they should be doing uh, and then to have a government say you should be doing this is fine but it, that's okay it's like it's like you know uh, as long as you're providing me with the correct support to do that then brilliant but um to have it as a um but if, if it's used then it's the the right you know it's a, it's a human right to to be brought up in a safe anxiety-free loving environment if that then pushes the other way and says to a government okay well this is what you need to actually do to to ensure that every child has that right um, and uh, then that could be a good thing as well
1: great well i've really enjoyed our conversation thank you very much as i say it's one of our series and we are exploring other issues around things like trust and kindness and empathy all these these things that you have touched on but, uh, thank you it's been a great conversation. Thanks, Thanks, Colin.
0: Thank you ever so much for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about our work, please visit www.children'sparliament.org.uk.